Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East political science podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Uh, with us today is Malfred Brauthegghammer. She's from the Department of Political Science at the University of Oslo, and she's the author of a recent book, Unclear Physics, Why Iraq and Libya Failed to Build Nuclear Weapons, uh, recently published by Cornell University Press. Uh, Malfred, a welcome to POMEPs. Thank you so much for having me. So this is a, a fascinating look back into kind of the forgotten and lost history of the nuclear programs in the Middle East. Um, tell us a little bit about the main uh, contribution of the book. What, what is it that you think the book is really helping us to understand about these nuclear programs and, and kind of what we need to know about their history? Well... I suppose the main ambition is really to tell a history of these nuclear weapons programs and set them in the context of these regimes. Um, one of my frustrations has been that um, many have discounted, especially the Iraqi nuclear program, and sort of suggested that they were just it was the program wasn't successful, and that more broadly that authoritarian leaders will inevitably fail in their efforts to pursue nuclear weapons. Now these days with North Korea, clearly we can we can see that that's that doesn't seem right. But specifically with regards to these programs, I wanted to show that the Iraqi program was actually on the threshold of success in '91 when the Gulf War interrupted the program, whereas the Libyan program dwindled on until 2003 uh, without ever coming close to any kind of success and breakthrough, and so. These are very different outcomes. Even though neither country ended up with nuclear weapons, Iraq easily could have if Saddam had not invaded Kuwait in 1990. So my hope was to give uh, an explanation of, of those outcomes and to, to shed more light on how personalist leaders in the Middle East and perhaps beyond um, try to govern their nuclear weapons programs and show that they adopt different approaches to that. So I, I want to come back uh, in a minute to this fascinating question of why Saddam decided to invade Kuwait just before he got a nuclear weapon. It's a fascinating question. Um, but let's start at the beginning. Um, so in the book, you on the Iraqi nuclear program, uh, you challenge the kind of existing prevailing conventional wisdom about uh, the, the nuclear program, not just that they were closer than people thought they were, but also the way it was organized. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one one of the challenges of, of doing research on regimes like Saddam's Iraq um, before 2003 was that we had very limited access to sources from inside Iraq. And so it was perhaps, um, there was the risk that people uh, bought into Saddam's image or the one he wanted to project of one who was all-seeing, all-knowing and all-powerful. And now that I've had access to uh, primary sources from inside Iraq, sort of contemporary assessments by scientists and other regime officials about the program, how it was managed, and the challenges that they faced, um, it's quite clear that this program was much more chaotic than people have realized. And that Saddam not only didn't really try to micromanage, but that for the most part, he was very happy to let the scientists run the show and to let them set the deadlines and organize the program. And for me, one of the fascinating uh, discoveries of this was uh, just you know the ways in which scientists and engineers and officials designed this program to be difficult to oversee, that they would report 
not only selectively in terms of what you know they were achieving and not achieving, but that they would report in a way that was very technical, difficult for anyone who wasn't a scientist to decipher, um, that they would mix what they had achieved with what they were hoping to achieve, and that even Saddam actually didn't press them to set any deadlines or any specific uh, targets before 1985, which was you know, several years into the program. So overall, I would say that the program was managed in a very different way than I had expected, and I think uh, that's one of the important findings um, of my research, is that there was much more delegation and, frankly, uh, chaos than, than I had expected. Now, did you come away with the impression that this that the nuclear sector was kind of emblematic of the larger state of affairs in Iraq, or was there something distinctive about the nuclear file which meant that it was in some way exempt from Saddam's usual way of doing business? That's a great question. I guess I found a little bit of both. Um, what I what I do in the book is I draw some parallels between the nuclear program and the biological program and the chemical weapons program, but also to larger problems uh, in the military-industrial complex. Um, we see that actually there was this cottage industry that emerged in the 80s during the Iran-Iraq war, where scientists, whether they were in universities or part of the proper programs, could just pitch a project, get funding, in many cases, nothing came of it. And it's fascinating to look at conversations between Saddam Hussein and his senior advisors where they complain about all these scientists who just got money and did nothing and did not deliver. So they were aware of these problems, but during the Iran-Iraq war, uh, they decided it was better to try and encourage innovation and sort of see how how it all turned out. So by by the mid-80s, they were trying to rein this in a little bit. And that's clear both in the nuclear program and in other programs. I think the nuclear program was different for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, Saddam had great respect for nuclear scientists. Scientists in general, as Joseph Sassoon also shows, but probably he had a special place in his heart for nuclear scientists. And after the Israeli attack on a research reactor in 1981, Saddam was much more focused on the nuclear issue. Uh, this was a clear humiliation. Um, that's when he decided to really get serious about pursuing nuclear weapons. And that's one of the reasons why he gave the chief nuclear scientist a blank check, like literally a blank check. And uh, the nuclear program was not subject to any restrictions, sort of financial or otherwise, during the Iran-Iraq war, when a lot of other areas of the state were really, really suffering. Let's talk a little more about that 1981 strike on the, uh, the Iraqi nuclear facility. Um, this is often held up as a counterproliferation success. Um, that this strike managed to take out an incipient program, and your book doesn't really support that reading of what happened. So tell us a little more about that. That's right. Um, I've, I touch on this in the book, and I wrote an article in International Security about this as well. So um, those who believe that the, uh, that the Israeli attack um, held back the program sort of base, their base this on the assumption that the Iraqis were serious about pursuing nuclear weapons in the early 70s, and that this reactor was intended to be a stepping stone uh, towards a plutonium route to nuclear weapons. Um, what I find in my research is that the Iraqis were much less 
serious about uh, about pursuing a nuclear weapons options in the 70s, that this was uh, an ambition, it wasn't the stated objective, there was no organized program moving in that direction, but that they were developing uh, various technical um, capabilities with the unstated goal of, at some point, going towards a weapons option. Now, Saddam had started to send some signals to his scientists in 79-80 that this was in fact his ambition to go towards a weapons option, but nothing had started yet. And actually he put his two main scientists in prison in 79, uh, which is a pretty clear indication that he wasn't really in a hurry. Um, he asked both of those scientists to develop nuclear weapons for him while they were in prison. But they stayed in prison after one of them agreed to do so. So when the Israeli attack happened, um, that really brought Saddam's attention back to the issue of nuclear weapons. But one of the interesting things that I find in my book is that it actually saved the neck of the pro-bomb lobby inside the Iraqi nuclear program. Because this was a group of scientists that had been pitching the idea of a weapons program to Saddam since the early 70s. They, didn't, they never really got the green light, but they were aggressively lobbying. And just before the Israeli attack, they were having a meeting where the leader of this group was getting really worked up because he began to realize that maybe this research reactor wasn't suited for a nuclear weapons program. And he called in various uh, engineers and scientists to give their opinion. Of course, they were very careful. They couldn't really say, no, it's not going to work. So they said that, well, something technical, technical. Now, this guy, of course, understood that what they meant was it's probably not going to work in a nuclear weapons program. And he then told everyone that his neck would be the last one to be cut off in case this didn't work out. So in some ways, the Israeli attack saved the necks of the pro-bomb lobby in the Iraqi nuclear program. It didn't really remove a safe route into a nuclear weapons program from because the reactor wasn't suited for that. It could help them develop basic skills, but it couldn't really work in terms of a nuclear weapons program. And then it led them on to an accelerated uh, research track and to decentralizing the program and putting it underground and Precisely. all those things needed to protect the program. Precisely. So they had to adopt a different uh, technical approach because of the attack. And of course, the attack meant that other countries uh, did pay attention to what the Iraqis were doing in terms of their reactor program, but they didn't rec realize um, just how successful the Iraqis were in pursuing these other technical routes. And so the Iraqi program went on for almost a decade and got close to the threshold of success, and most foreign countries didn't realize. Well, they began to suspect something was going on in 89 or so, but they had no idea of the scope and the scale and just, you know, how dangerous this program was becoming. Okay, let's get back to this question of, uh, of, of the Gulf War. Um, so um, you talk about how they start getting really serious about the program and they're starting to make serious progress towards it. And uh, according to your assessment, they were actually quite close to getting a nuclear weapon, but it was all interrupted by the invasion of Kuwait and what followed. So beyond the obvious, which is that Saddam is a terrible tactician, um, what, you know, what explains the timing of that choice? Why didn't they just wait until they had the nuclear weapon? So I, I should also add that the assessment that the Iraqi program was close or at the threshold of success, that's not just my assessment, it's also the IAEA's assessment. But scholars have, you know, disagreed with that for a long time. 
But when it comes to Saddam's decision, well, I guess one thing is clear, and that is that the nuclear weapons program was not his primary concern at that time. Uh, he was receiving reports that things were going well, um, but that did not seem to factor into his decision at all. And another interesting uh, part of that story is that, you know, after the invasion of Kuwait, when Iraq saw the reaction of the international community and the U.S. in particular, they decided to, to launch a crash program to rapidly assemble um, a nuclear device. And uh, Hussein Kamel, who was Saddam's son-in-law and sort of the nuclear czar in some ways, he briefed Saddam on this uh, in the fall of 1990. And Saddam apparently looked kind of bored and wasn't really impressed because Hussein Kamel said, we're really, really close which wasn't entirely true, by the way, but uh, because the crash program faced a number of other challenges. But Saddam apparently wasn't too impressed with that. It's, it's fascinating. Let, let's um, switch gears for a moment, because the book is actually about two different countries, and you try and draw the comparisons between the two, not all aut autocratic regimes are the same. So what about Libya? What was going on with the Libyan program, and why was it so unsuccessful compared to what you saw in Iraq? Well, the Libyan program is, is really fascinating. It is so different from the Iraqi case in many ways. There are some similarities when it comes to the chaos and the challenges in terms of oversight, um, but it's, it's a very different, different case altogether. The main reason is that um, Gaddafi had his... His project was to dismantle the state. He wanted what he called a stateless state. Now... If you want a successful nuclear weapons program, you have to have functioning state institutions that can plan and launch and implement and review a program that is very complex, many, many different components that have to work together. And in Libya's case, that was not happening. So um, very little was actually known about the Libyan program. Uh, and I was able to find quite a lot of primary sources to shed more light on it. And what fascinates me is that Consistently throughout this program, which started in 1970 and ended in 2003, you see that there were there was a small number of Libyan scientists who made you know very sound decisions, laid out nice plans that made made sense, but any time they tried to implement something, it all fell apart. It's a long history of initiatives that just disintegrated as soon as someone had to try and organize something. So it's uh, it's a fascinating story, and I, I suspect that the Libyan case is a unique one, and that's why I wanted to really flesh out just how dysfunctional this program was, because it's it's kind of hard to believe if you don't read it in great detail. I think. Now, in Iraq, you had access to not just the IAEA reports and UN reports, but also you know captured documents and cabinet transcripts and all of that. What kinds of sources were you able to find in Libya? What, what kinds of archives or uh, you know, uh, participants or whatever were you able to access to understand that program, which has always been very secretive? Yes. Um, well, the starting point was when I went to Libya in 2005 and 2006 and talked to mostly uh, diplomats, decision makers um, who were involved in the decision making part, but not the trying to build centrifuges part. Um, so that really taught me a lot about what kind of state this was and how things worked and, and didn't work. Uh, later on, I was able to supplement that with 
there are a couple of accounts um, of this program made by Libyan scientists. Uh, they're kind of difficult to get hold of. Um, I was fortunate to access access one. Um, and the IAEA archives were really essential because these were contemporary assessments of the program that came from visiting technical experts who mm -hmm. spent weeks, in some cases months, on site and really got a sense of the everyday life um, inside this nuclear program. So to take this up to the present day then, so after having studied these two nuclear programs and their different kinds of success, what are the lessons for the nuclear crises that the world faces today, whether North Korea or the possibility of, of Iran, you know, the end of the, of, the, of the Iran deal and going back there, or for that matter, even uh, the possibility of proliferation into the Gulf uh, in response to Iranian nuclear weapons? What lessons does your book or your research have for trying to assess how seriously to take those kinds of nuclear programs? I think that the main lesson is that we can't just assume that personalist leaders will fail in these programs. First of all, we see that the Iraqi program came close to success and that it was their own decisions that led to the collapse of that program after 1991. Um, when you look at North Korea today, well, you see a very actually sophisticated program. It, it's a program that has been going sort of on and off for many, many years. And I, th I think that one of the broader lessons we can take from the Iraqi case and possibly North Korea is even if a program isn't perfectly managed, even if it has various problems that you tend to see in these personalist regimes or authoritarian regimes, if, if you have a lot of time, this is old technology and scientists and engineers can solve these problems, especially if, if they find themselves in a regime where the leader gives them space to do that and doesn't try to micromanage and doesn't try to interfere with their work. And more broadly, if you look at other authoritarian regimes that have done this successfully, you see that they often make an explicit decision to give their scientists more scope to do their work and solve their problems. And there's this famous example from, from the Soviet program where Stalin and Beria, they're discussing you know, what to do about the program now that it became their problem number one, as they said. And they decide to give the scientists more freedom to solve their problems, noting that they could always shoot them later. So I think that personalist leaders are aware that there are different trade-offs that come with their own uh, undermining of state institutions to expand their own power and that this can have negative effects for various technical projects and that sometimes they may decide to give scientists more freedom. So we should really take these risks seriously and we shouldn't assume that all leaders will make... Um, in terms of like counter-proliferation measures, um, you know, there's a number of different things that you see in, in, in the book and, in, and just in general in terms. So, for example, you have assassination campaigns to kill specific scientists. You have interdiction campaigns to, you know, stop the flow of particular kinds of nuclear materials into the country. You have the actual bombing raid in Osirik. Um, do you get a sense that of which of these are more effective than others at inhibiting uh, a regime? Yes, I think uh, looking at all the various measures that were taken against Iraq, uh, fewer measures were taken against the Libyan program. Um, but from the Iraqi case, it seems that 
the main uh, implication or the main consequence of these measures was to make the Iraqis very, very careful in their program, that they had to be very careful of in terms of approaching foreign suppliers and how they set up the program because they were concerned about future attacks or that other countries, and specifically Israel, would carry out another attack like the one they did in Osi Iraq. So I think that inhibition was, uh, was perhaps the most important effect of all these measures. But more broadly, um, I do think that the sort of gradual development of a non-proliferation regime and supply-side controls began to make it more difficult for states like Iraq and Libya. And the main effect of that was it made everything take longer. And when things take longer, leaders can make other mistakes or they can perhaps decide that other projects are more important. So I think mm. overall that absolutely that there were important effects of the non-proliferation regime. And I think, though, that some of the counter-proliferation counter measures, that their effects have been exaggerated, because we see that the Iraqis found other ways around this, and we also see that these other approaches were much more difficult to detect from the outside. And so the outside world kind of sort of missed that the Iraqi program was making rapid advances in the late 80s. And I guess one last, maybe a naive question. Why... Why didn't Gaddafi just buy off-the-shelf nuclear weapons from Pakistan? Well, the, the Libyans tried to buy nuclear weapons uh, from several countries, it seems, but no one was willing to sell them weapons. Um, so that didn't really work out. And then they tried to buy centrifuges and sort of off-the-shelf equipment to make their own nuclear weapons. The problem, though, was that A.Q. Khan, who was the Pakistani freelance supplier of these things, he sold them outdated models and he didn't really help them in terms of putting these centrifuges up and running. And so the Libyans felt like they had spent a lot of money on stuff that they didn't figure out how to make work. So it, it was a bad deal for them in the long term. All right, thank you. We've been speaking with Malfred Brauteghammer of the University of Oslo uh, about her new book, uh, Unclear Physics, Why Iraq and Libya Failed to Build Nuclear Weapons from Cornell University Press. Uh, Malfred, thanks for joining us. Thank you.